Yes, yeah, show 73 of the film file. The film show for film geeks by film geeks. Roll music, pump up for action. Hey, you get ready, get on your feet, get into gear and hit the street. It's you that we want to see, so get down to 73. Get down to 73. Hey, you get down to 73. That's a blast to my youth. Oh, yeah. Sandy, Tox- Sandy Toxfig was yeah. in that. I just remember <laughs> that, yeah. Okay, and we're in. Hi, and welcome to The Film File. Yeah, that film show. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Beacon. And welcome, of course, to The Film File. We're into episode 73 of probably the longest running podcast I've ever been involved in. How about you, Andy? Yeah, I think the most I've managed before this was I managed to 12 episodes on the old Film File show from way back in 2014. We, we passed that point last year when we hit lockdown. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it, it, it's great because I, I feel that this is just like something which is fun to do each week. We enjoy having our catch-up chats anyway. So to do that and have all you listeners out there listening to us and, you know, we get the occasional feedback saying, like what you're doing, really enjoying it. And yeah, that, that means the world to me. Money would mean more, but you know. <laughs> yes, please, sponsor. please sponsor us uh, <laughs> so we could do this full time. We didn't have to do a, a day job, but you love your day job and you are back in the cinema. I am. And I'm, I'm absolutely wiped out all the time. We have been so busy and it doesn't help that the weather is so oppressively hot at the moment. And for those who aren't listening in the UK, oppressively hot over here is anything above five degrees as far as we're concerned. We're not used to hot weather. Uh, so uh, and I'm out of breath by the time I get to work because of how intense the heat is. And then I have to work a full shift or more on a busy day. And then come home and I have all these plans for things that I want to continue doing that I got started during lockdown and I fall behind on, such as the video channel, which I said last week I was kind of overlooking and neglected. Well, good news is finally got an update on that this week. Uh, I've compiled three of our deep dives together into one episode for people to go over there and see how we perform it on the day because there's um, <laughs> always some outtakes, <laughs> always some mistakes, that'll, that'll be me, always then. some stumbles. That'll be me. <laughs> Um, a question then before we move on with the show. So it's great news that the cinemas are back, of course, and we've been we've been waiting for this. How's that been? And how's that been with the sudden climate weather that we've been getting? You know, the two aren't usually mutually acceptable. You get hot weather, Ooh. you don't get people coming to cinemas. How's that working out? Are, are people responding to, to the doors being open, but yet they'd rather be sat in a beer garden right now? How's it figuring out? Well, We've noticed we're running at 50% capacity as all cinemas are across the UK at the moment. And we've been selling out not just the horror films like Conjuring and Quiet Place, but also your family films like Cruella, uh, Peter Rabbit 2, etc. It has been the half term, but normally the half term, like you said, it's very weather dependent. And if the weather's like this, cracking the pavements that we've had, cinemas can see a bit of a drop back. So it's been quite a surprise to see people still wanting to flock in it did peter off a bit towards the end of the weekend but then sunday i don't know i don't know if you noticed by 11 o'clock in the morning the heavens opened and there was a sudden downpour. Oh, yeah. and so and so sunday got another surge of business and now whilst the daytimes are reasonably quiet people are still coming in the evenings to catch the last shows of the horror films mostly because they are a nine o'clock kind of audience so people aren't being put off by the weather being good 
They still want to come and embrace cinema. And that is marvellous. And it's great to see that it's not just us as a site, it's across the industry, because we're still keeping the same market share that what we've had before the initial lockdowns in our local market. We're still strong within there. But no, you know, we haven't seen Cineworld lose business because of the weather, which they used to always lose business. Yeah, I remember those days. Because yeah. of the weather. But no, we're all coming back with a vengeance. Obviously, we're not quite at that um, huge, like, packing out the auditorium's levels yet. But as a starting point, and bearing in mind that we can't get to our pack-out levels because of the 50% capacity, this is a good start. Great. That's what we want. That's what we were hoping for. I mean, I'm so pleased. You know, we, we had that discussion all the way through our lockdown shows, um, all the way through through last summer. Would people come back? And we we sang from the rooftops, didn't we, that people yeah. would. People want that shared experience of being in a cinema, being in a theatre, being in an auditorium with, with other human beings and, and sharing whether it's cinema, uh, theatre, music, they want to share that experience. And, and this discussion will segue into the first thing that I'm going to bring up in the news in a second. Okay. But before you bring up the news, what have we got coming up on today's show? So we've got, of course, the reviews. Andy will be talking about... Raya and the Last Dragon, and also a new film that landed on Amazon this week called The Outpost. I'll be mentioning my love of Sweet Tooth, not just the TV series, but my general sweet tooth anyway. We'll be doing our deep dive this week into Catherine Bigelow's classic, Near Dark. But before all that, Andy, of course, has got a nose for the news. He is the private dick when it comes to news investigation. He is the man who can shuffle into any cyberspace to bring you all the latest news headlines. In this sequence, imaginatively titled, The News. So what have you got, Andy? What is this week's news? So picking up on our brief discussion of the resurgence of cinemas. In the US, Alamo Draft House has emerged from the other side of their Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing, which was brought about due to the closures through COVID. And it's now owned by Altamont Capital Partners, Fortress Investment Group and Alamo founder Tim League. And at the same time, They are so confident in the new market that has opened up that they've announced plans to open five new theatres by the end of 2022. To compensate for the underperforming venues that they were forced to abandon, they've now seen places that they think this is what needs a cinema. And that is clearly a good sign. Cinemas themselves are confident that there's still more market to be tapped into. At the same time, AMC, who we know had some financial troubles, is raising more capital with an intention to purchase additional cinema leases and grow their existing properties. The return of cinema has clearly been much more positive than most expected. And it's a growing confidence in exhibitors once more that is now growing their audiences. And this all gets back to what I said at the start, that in the UK, we're seeing audiences return in droves. And there are talking talks within our own industry of each chain has got its eye on various sites. There are more developments going ahead. Whoever said cinema is, is de- cinema is dead was clearly wrong. I mean, because, you know, let's remember, when people said cinema was, a, was dead, it was the mid-20th century when TV sets arrived at the homes. Oh, no. Was it when VHS was arrived in the home? No. Uh, was it cinema was dead when DVD came on the scene and gave us crisp quality? No. What about home surround systems? Once they were introduced, cinema was dead, yeah? No. Blu-ray? No. Streaming? No. You get the picture. Cinema is not dead. Cinema is coming back stronger and stronger. It, I mean, it's great to hear. Um, 
we have to be honest though there were moments in some of our previous discussions for those who are listening on uh, on on the radio no, don't know that we have a podcast during the podcast days we were we were worried at some point i mean we started the hashtag campaign save our cinemas that we looked at some of those cinemas moving into what the, the us called chapter 11 but it sounds positive. Um, and, and kind of to follow on on that, Andy, I don't know if you're going to mention this in the news. Uh, Cruella has been picked up for a sequel. Um, you saw it, you talked about it last week. And it's been picked up for a sequel because it's not only done well, uh, and there's a site that gives you some estimations of how things are working out on uh, the streaming services and what kind of figures. I think we've used them in the past when we were talking about Justice League. Yeah. But, you know, I think there, there's been an earnings of about $20 million from the Disney Plus site and then a, another sort of further $24 million from cinema site. So, you know, you add those together, the two are now, are now working exclusively together rather than than making it more difficult because people are still nervous absolutely but it, it's going to be interesting to see how the industry views this uh, and I'm, I'm, by industry i'm thinking of uh, of the streaming services hbo max uh, disney plus in particular how they see those figures working out and um, are they going to sort of pull back their premium releases now cinemas are becoming more popular cruella is one of those films as well that we're seeing the admissions to it rise after the first weekend because obviously word of mouth from people who've come to see it at the cinema they've gone home and said whoa you need to see this this looks great big screen marvelous and we got better figures on its second weekend so it's great to see that you know streaming and cinema can work hand in hand to each other's each other's mutual benefits we've said before the key thing is that cinema adapts to anything that comes along as a potential threat and the release windows is the one thing that is going to change going forwards. We already know that some distributors have now worked out deals to have 45-day release windows instead of the traditional 90. For those out there who don't understand what release window is, a release window means that it releases at the cinema and then it can't go into any other media, either home retail or home streaming, for a minimum period of time. It traditionally was 90 days or three months. It's now looking to be a month and a half. But that will only happen if the films aren't performing in the first couple of weeks. It gives the distributors options to recoup some costs by a fast track back to retail. And that's the only changes that we'll see. Things like Fast, fast and Furious 9, which is coming up at the end of this month, that will bring people in. People yeah. want to go to the cinema for a Fast and Furious film. All the blockbusters are safe and comfortable in cinemas, but cinemas are also adapting to also show a more varied type of content, including tapping the streaming markets and using Netflix productions, Amazon productions and Apple productions as big screen blockbusters. So it, it's all about the industry embracing the streaming services and the streaming service embracing the industry and working as a whole for the benefit of film and media. That's positive. So we mentioned that Cruella is getting a sequel. Craig Gillespie is still attached to direct and everybody loves Emma Stone and Emma Stone's coming back. So what else do you have other than the now mentioned Cruella sequel? So a tease trailer for Shazam released this week and gave us a sneaky glance at the new costume for Shazam, Fury of the Gods. We see the close-up detail of boots, we see the gloves, and we see the chest before a silhouetted Levi poses and asks, why is it so dark? <laughs> Photos from the set show a bit more detail with a new darker red and gold costume, and it has a smaller lightning bolt and a more mature design. There's less padding and artificial muscles, and it's a more a form-fitting, natural look that we have seen with other superheroes. 
Basically, if you consider that the first film, the Shazam that we saw, was a child's idea of a superhero. But now that child is growing with his abilities and also maturing a bit. Obviously, he's going to start seeing superheroes in a slightly different way. Looks great. Can't wait. Really enjoyed the first film. What else have you got, Andy? Uh, So, Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan are going to play the journalist who exposed Harvey Weinstein in She Said for Universal Pictures. They'll be playing the parts of Megan Toohey and Jodie Cantor, whose landmark 2017 expose ignited the hashtag MeToo movement and won the Pulitzer Prize for public service and led to the fall of Weinstein and the opening of a lot of revelations about the industry. This was going to happen. This was definitely going to be happening now that all the Weinstein thing was put to bed and he was locked up, that this was going to become a major cinematic release. And great names involved there, Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan. Rebecca Lenkovitz, who penned Ida and won an Oscar for it, is writing, and Maria Schrader is directing. So Carrie Mulligan clearly on a roll since uh, Promising Young Woman, which we both liked a lot. And uh, uh, even though she didn't win the nomination for Best Actress, she was absolutely superb. I still remember in Doctor Who. That's where I first yeah. saw her. What else have you got? Now, I don't think either of us are fans of Rob Zombie. No, I have seen this story, so I know where you're going. I'm not, I've never been a huge fan of the project that he's tackling next, but kudos to him for getting a chance to do it. For the past 20 years, Rob Zombie has been chasing the possibility of bringing one of his beloved TV shows to the big screen from when he was a kid, and that is The Munsters. The Munsters, to me, was always a poor man's Adams family. I never quite dug it as much. I don't think it really had that much of an impact in the UK, but it was huge in America. I loved it. I, I remember it. I, I actually preferred it retrospectively to The Munsters, even though I think The Adams Family is now a better show. Yeah. Adam's Family has had multiple chances at the big screen and has been successful each time that it's done big screen outings. But the Monsters has never tapped that big audience. Well, Rob Zombie announced only yesterday in a post that he did on social media, and I'll read out his post. Attention, boils and ghouls. The rumours are true. My next film project will be the one I've been chasing for 20 years. The Monsters. Stay tuned for exciting details as things progress. Now, Clearly, this won't be adapted in the same manner that he basically tackles his horror films, because let's be honest, his his horror films is take a generic template and lay a grease over it and just leave it to run. That's how I see all of his horror films. This has a little bit more potential to show what he can do if he can do anything more versatile as a director. The Monsters, for those who don't know, was a 1964 sitcom that followed a family of friendly monsters who lived in an American suburb. Unlike the similar Adams Family, like I said, it's never made the big screen. However, it did have a reboot uh, from Brian Fuller in 2012 that was never picked up after the pilot episode, Mockingbird Lane. No, it looked interesting. I'm just going to point out that they, they did do a big screen version of it, but it was the, it was the cast. It was the original cast doing sort of, you know, like they used to do with British sitcoms, uh, the On the Busters Go on Holiday. So they basically did that. They did a Monsters Go on Holiday, which was okay. And it was kind of the end of the TV series run, but they've never rebooted it in, in any way, apart from the aforementioned pilot, which, which never got picked up, which I think you can find on YouTube, by the way. Yeah, I, I enjoyed Mockingbird Lane, despite the fact that I've never been a big fan of the Munsters. I enjoyed it because Brian Fuller holds some appeal to me. I've loved any all of his creations. I'm intrigued with this one. More to see what Rob Zombie can do with it, because like I say, I'm not a huge fan of what he's done so far, but I remain to be proven 
that he can actually deliver something family-friendly and enjoyable. I hope he remembers that it's a comedy yep. and that he doesn't add that layer of grease. <laughs> and, and just for the record, I've walked out of two films and one of them was a Rob Zombie film. Anyway, <laughs> next story, please, Andy. The Borderlands movie is underway with shooting and the official account for the game series has been sharing some tease pics of the cast, albeit silhouettes, to show off the design somewhat. Now, whilst the silhouettes of Tannis, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tiny Tina, Ariana Greenblatt, Lilith, Kate Blanchett, Roland, Kevin Hart, Claptrap, Jack Black, look pretty authentic to the game series. A group shot of the team in silhouette made one thing pretty clear. The 5'11 soldier Roland from the games is woefully miscast in the form of 5'2 inches heart <laughs> and looks quite diminutive against the others, which loses some of the impression of that character that you get from the games. The film draws from the popular game series. It sees Lilith returning to her home planet of Pandora to find the missing daughter of Atlas, played by Edgar Ramirez. She forms an unlikely alliance with a team of vault hunters, mercenaries who are seeking Pandora's treasures. Alien monsters and bandits cause problems for the team in the film, which is penned by Craig Mazin. This is a film that I'm keeping a cautious eye on. Let's see how it turns out. So Mark Miller appears to be approaching his Netflix TV shows in the very same manner he tackles his comics by randomly ditching whole volumes while he gives you something completely different and hopes he can keep interest for a possible future volume sometime down the line. Yes, the news came this week that Jupiter's Legacy, which has had very mixed reviews and saw some drop-off of viewership, has actually, well, they've not specifically said being cancelled. They've just said that uh, we're going to world-build with something else set in the same universe. Uh, we're just not tackling Jupiter's, Jupiter's Legacy at this point, maybe sometime down the line. This is a, a, a weird one. Josh Dulmal posted a picture of himself with his character's wig and beard on Instagram with a message that read, when you get dumped by Netflix and have to put yourself back out there, what's up, Hulu? Which uh, was quite amusing. But the project that they've chosen for the world building is Super Crooks. Have you ever read Super Crooks? No, I only got through two issues of uh, Jupiter Legacy. I read Nemesis, which I uh, offended me. <laughs> um, I thought it was it was a mean-spirited book. I, I, I like the premise, but I thought it had a... Uh, an awful mean spirit, which I find a lot in Mark, Mark Millar's stuff. So never got around to Super Crooks. Uh, I've, I've seen it about. Not a huge fan. I think he, he comes up with great premises, but he always has a he has this nasty edge to them, which I don't always think is necessary. And I think that that travels through a lot of his work, even his uh, his more mainstream stuff like Ultimates and uh, and his. He's run on a, a Spider-Man limited series. But interestingly enough about this is that Netflix spent a reported 200 million on this series, eight episodes. That's a lot of money. That's more than some, as, as much as some features. So the drop-off must have been huge off after episode one. Apparently episode one picked up some good viewers, but by episode four, they cancelled. So the drop-off must have been pretty, pretty huge by that. I didn't engage with it. I tried... There, there was something, I think it was the two timelines that sort of put me off because it, as soon as you do that, it, it lacks any tension. And I never went back. So I, it, it looks like the majority of people didn't. But hey, we got another comic book series. Yeah. I mean, Super, Super Crooks is a story set within that Jupiter's Legacy world setting where a load of Super Crooks have gone into hiding because it's just not worth the hassle when people can fly around and punch you down. If you think along the lines of something like the Brit flick Sexy Beast, which sees a group of old criminals all get together for one last big job, that's what Super Crooks is. However, it's doing that last job when you've got special powers. It's an interesting comic. It wasn't great. 
And it seems like a weird choice to swap out Jupiter's Legacy for, for this, to be honest with you. I'm not sold on it. I'm not convinced on it. And I think audiences will start to wonder whether it's worth getting into another show. Those people who stuck through Jupiter's Legacy and loved it, I mean, I know that I'm one of the people who really enjoyed it, but I love the comic a lot. I'm like, do I want to put myself into another show only for that to get cancelled and swapped out with something else and then put myself into that only for that to get cancelled and swapped out? I don't get it. I think it's the wrong move. If you're going to cancel it, just cancel it. Don't say, well, well we're just going to world build with other things. They've muddied the waters too much and I think it will put audiences off that way. Have you seen the trailer for the new Steven Soderbergh uh, film, which is... Uh... Sounds pretty much like Super Crooks. I've not, no. So yeah, it's it's um, it's got a great cast. It's a group of criminals are brought together under rather mysterious circumstances and have to work together to uncover what's really going on when their simple job goes completely south. Uh, directed by Steven Soderbergh, written by Ed Solomon, who you'll know from Bill and Ted series, starring uh, Brendan Fraser, Benicio del Toro, Matt Damon's in there, David Harbour. Yeah, it sounds really intriguing. John Hamm, don't know much else about it, but it sounds right up my alley, and I'm a big fan of Steven Soderbergh. Except for his uh, direction of the Oscars. <clears throat> Moving on. Matrix 4 is still on target for the December the 22nd release date, and news came this week that Christina Ricci has joined the cast of the still-untitled film Matrix revamped, rebooted, Matrix regurgitated, reinstated. I don't know. <laughs> they could call it anything. Uh, details of the film are closely guarded. We have no idea of characters, setting, or how Neo if it is indeed Neo, has returned. All we have are speculations and the knowledge that newcomers to the franchise, Yaha Abdul-Mateen II, Jessica Henwick, Neil Patrick Harris, Priyanka Chopra and Jonathan Groff, all join the old returnees, Keanu Reeves, Carrie-Anne Moss, Trinity, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Niobe, Daniel Bernhardt, Agent Johnson and Lambert Wilson, who played Merovingian. As a big fan of The Matrix... And it's a series of films that I even enjoyed the second and third. I'm quite excited to see what the Wachowskis pull out of their sleeves for this new film. Netflix have announced that their assassin thriller, Kate, which stars Mary Elizabeth Winstead, will land on the service on September the 10th. Winstead in this plays a female assassin who's poisoned whilst on a hit in Tokyo and has 24 hours to live. So she spends that time hunting down all those who gave her that death sentence. Cedric Nicholas Troyan, who gave us Huntsman's Winter's War, directs, and Woody Harrelson will co-star alongside her. Quite, I'm looking forward to seeing a trailer for this to get the buzz for it, because I do like Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and I love that she's starting to get some prominence again in the past year or so. Yeah, she's really she's really sort of re-emerged after uh, having a little bit of a quiet spell. Um, I recently watched uh, Scott Pilgrim, and she is the best <laughs> thing in it. Uh, I, not that I dislike Scott Pilgrim, but I just think she just steals every scene that she's in. Um, I have a bit of news for you. Whatever happened to Rennie Harlan? Do you remember Rennie Harlan? He was the next big blockbuster guy. He brought us initially Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Uh, he did Deep Blue Sea. He did uh, Die Hard 2. Then he did Cutthroat Island, which sank, pun intended, the production company. And Exorcist at the beginning. And you didn't really see much of Rennie Harlan after that. Anyway, he's back with a new movie called The Refuge. And it's a horror movie. And it stars um, Jason Fleming. And it's basically a U.S. veteran who returns home a changed and dangerous man after a tour of duty in Afghanistan, where he suffered an attack by a mysterious force. 
while officials dismiss his behaviour as just PTSD and order trauma therapy, his wife Kate discovers her husband has been possessed by something evil. Ooh. It seems as though Rennie Harlan is now back to the B-movie. Uh, I like Jason Fleming, but and I used to like Rennie Harlan, but I'm just kind of thinking this might not be the film for me, and I'm assuming it will go straight to streaming. Uh, sticking with horror, the new adaptation of Firestarter from Stephen King for Blumhouse and Universal has landed the lead role of Charlie in the guise of 11-year-old Ryan Kira Armstrong, who had a small part in it, Chapter 2. She was the kid that was killed by Pennywise under the bleachers, who had the birthmark. And she'll also be seen in the upcoming Black Widow and Tomorrow War. Uh, the film, which previously was adapted in 1984 with Drew Barrymore in the lead role, follows a young girl who develops pyrokinetic powers and is abducted by a secret government agency who want to use her as a weapon. And it will co-star Zac Efron and Michael Greyeyes. And Keith Thomas is directing for a screenplay penned by Scott Teams, who has penned Halloween Kills, which hopefully will arrive this year. I liked to some degree uh the original film i'm a great fan of the book i think it's a great stephen yeah. king book but i i thought it was just okay so i'm always open to the fact that this can be tons tons better just please don't be pets yeah <laughs> so we reviewed last week uh, a quiet place too and gave it a very very positive thumbs up it's been mentioned this week that midnight specials jeff nichols is to write and direct a film set within the world of a quiet place and that means paramount is now looking ahead to release uh, Nichols' addition to the franchise, and then a third Quiet Place movie, which has been scheduled to reach theatres in March 2023. I'm a big fan of Jeff Nichols. I think he's an interesting film director in the same way that he's character-driven um, that, that John Krasinski is. I think Midnight Special is a fantastic little film, and it reminds me a lot of John Carpenter's Starman. So I am eager to see not only uh, A Quiet Place 3, but Jeff Nichols' take on what looks to be an expanding universe. That's one of the things that we both said with the second film is that the small world building opened up a few questions as to what's happening elsewhere in the world. And it's I think it's great that there's going to be the official Quiet Place 3, which continues that family story. But there's also going to be new stories set elsewhere tying into it. We get to see whether different countries were impacted or whether it was just an American thing. I'm all for it. I wanted more as soon as we walked out of that screening. And I can't wait until, you know, well, I've got to wait two more years before we get to see the next parts. Speaking of part threes, Creed 3 is signing up Jonathan Majors, who was in the excellent Lovecraft Country TV series, to co-star in a role which is expected to be Adonis Creed's main rival in the ring this time. The film is not only starring Michael B. Jordan, but is being directed by him also. And whilst Tessa Thompson and Felicia Rashard are back, Stallone isn't. Having decided that the torch has now passed and his presence as Rocky will only detract against Creed's story going forwards. So, are we thinking the way that it played out with the second film? This could be Clubber Lang's son, or is that just getting silly now? That's one of those decisions that I kind of think that would be an interesting way to go, but it'd also be a cliche way to go. Seems like they've literally just done that on the second film with um, Ivan Drago's son. I don't know how it'd feel. If that ends up being the case, I don't think it needs to be that, but I don't think I'll necessarily be opposed to it. It's kind of interesting because Jonathan Majors was fantastic in Lovecraft Country, and he's also coming up in the third Ant-Man and Wasp film, allegedly playing uh, Kang the Conqueror. 
And have you heard this other casting rumour that's going around for Wakanda Forever? Uh, which one is that? So it looks uh, as though they have cast, potentially, and this is only speculation because they, they seem to have cast this guy and everyone's <laughs> saying they, they've cast Namor the Submariner for Wakanda Forever. And it is uh, a guy called, Andy, remind me? Tenok Huerta who um, recently had work on Netflix's Narcos Mexico. That's where I've seen him, yeah. And he was good in that, yeah. He was very good. But we don't know yet if it is a Submariner. It's not been uh, uh, said by the great Feige himself. It's only been hinted at by uh, speculative fans. Wait and see. Until there's any official news, we'll just mark it down as potential. I'm not averse to it. I think that it's about time that they brought in the undersea world and brought the Submariner in. And that would tie nicely towards the at the end of this phase, Fantastic Four coming in because Submariner and Fantastic Four together. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever read the Broken Earth trilogy from N.K. Jemison? I haven't. I know very little about it. In fact, I may say, I actually know bugger all about it. <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm interested to track it down because uh, the book series... Uh, the three books each won the Hugo for best novel three years in a row, which has never happened before. Uh, so obviously, when you've got a book series, which is a sci-fi series that is so popular, someone's picked it up to adapt a film. And though someone is TriStar Pictures, with the author is set to adapt the novels to the screen herself. The story sounds right up my alley. It's set on a harsh futuristic earth on a land called the Stillness, which endures seasonal apocalyptical events. There's that word that you can't say. (laughs) So true. (laughs) Seasonal apocalyptical events that shake the world. Key to the survival of the communities that survive this harsh world are the origins. Individuals who can tap magical reservoirs from the earth. They're trained from childhood by the guardians, but the origins stave off disaster, but are treated harshly and considered the lowest ranking within society. It sounds like an intriguing world setup, and I now want to read the books. What I hope they do is just do a one-off film and not expect it to be an instant hit and therefore be a trilogy. And if it's not a big hit, you're stuck with one film that never ends because it's not got a, a, a <laughs> final act in it. It's always been built up as a cliffhanger which seems to happen a lot when they purchase these these sort of huge science fiction novels. Yeah. A uh, little bit of breaking news. Uh, Bill Skarsgård, who you last saw playing It in It and It Chapter 2, has joined the cast of John Wick Chapter 4, which I think is almost like a, a book title all of its own. Nice. One bad thing has happened from lockdown. It's that we've had to wait longer for John Wick Chapter 4 to get made. <laughs> I can't wait to see the next instalment of that. But at least uh, Keanu's had time to go off and film Matrix 4, which will be coming later this year. So it's not all bad. Before we round up the news, we've also got a return of the TMNT franchise is on the way to the big screen. Okay. At this time, they're not going for CGI men in a real world environment. They're not going for men in rubber suits. This time, they're going back to a fully CG animated movie, much like the often overlooked 2007 film was. And it's produced by Seth Rogen and Nickelodeon. Okay. Well, Seth Rogen, I must admit, I prefer much of his work producing than I do as an actor. You know, he brought us The Boys and he brought us Preacher. So, yeah, that sounds interesting. It's not right up my alley, but it it does sound interesting. Rogen's got a love of comic books, which he's shown by the things that he's produced. And his love of it transfers well in the productions. Uh, Brendan O'Brien, who pens the Rogan starring Bad Neighbours, is writing. And Mitchells versus the Machines director, Jeff Rowe, will helm. And at that point, I got very giddy. Colour me interested. I will be sliding that bandana over my eyes and uh, and some sort of 
kitchen implement as a weapon to join the cast right away because now I'm interested. Oh, did you see in the week some production stills from the new Indiana Jones film? So they've actually started production. Yes, uh, there's been some shots snapped from set on location where they've been filming of stunt doubles and also the man himself who I'd have to say we were all worried that is he getting a bit too uh, like long in the tooth to be playing this role, but he still looks snazzy in that fedora with the bull whip next to his side and his jacket, doesn't he? Yeah, I, I, I was genuinely excited. I really was. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just hoping it well. I'm hoping, as we, as we said a couple of weeks ago, that it, it puts to bed the Indiana Jones with a very memorable last film, because uh, that's that's been it's been a great saga. It had that dip with number four. So if this can put that bad memory away and we we come out smiling, then I'm all for it. As long as they do something different and unique, and, yeah. and that's the only thing. So before we go, I believe you've got some sad news. Yes. Uh, this past week on June the 4th, uh, Clarence Williams III passed away at the ripe old age of 81. Uh, he's known to a certain demographic as playing Link in the Mod Squad TV series, but he's also been recognisable from a variety of roles on both big and small screen throughout the decades, including in the 80s, he played Prince's father in Purple Rain. He played FBI agent Roger Hardy in Twin Peaks. He's had roles in films such as Reindeer Games, Against the Wall, I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, The Butler, Life, Sugar Hill, be it drama, comedy, whatever, he has successfully portrayed great support roles within them. And he's one of those faces that if you look him up online, Clarence Williams III, you will straight away recognise him from something that you love. Yeah, I, I do just about remember the Mod Squad. I did see it on reruns, so I, I didn't see it first time around. And it was quite a, an influential show when it came out. It was just very, very unique. And yeah, I, I just remember him from so many other uh, other appearances. Uh, as you say, not a big name, but he's one of those actors that you'd recognise instantly, in a yeah. usually in a great supporting role. And that is the news. Enjoying the show? I hope you are. Because we're enjoying the show. We love bringing this to you every week. If you've missed any past episodes, you can find them by subscribing to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Hit that subscription button. And each time that you do, a world collides. If you want to get in touch with us, you can pop over to Twitter and follow us at Filmfile UK. You can pop over to Instagram and see our faces, Filmfile UK. Or you can email us with any suggestions, queries, whatever you want to just send us a message. We just love hearing from you. Podcast at Filmfile.uk. So as you know, Andy and I have been doing a deep dive into some cult classics, some of our favourite films. I, out of nowhere, picked up this DVD out of my collection as me and the missus had gone away for a weekend. And I thought, you know what? It's been some time since I've watched this. I wonder if it holds up. And let me tell you, Near Dark, which originally came out in 1987, a neo-Western horror film co-written and directed by Catherine Bigelow, holds up so darn well. I'm going to separate your head from your shoulders. Do it fast. All right. The time's wrong. Might as well just kill me then, too. Caleb Colton no longer belongs to our world. We'll give him a week to see if we can call him one of us. He belongs to hers. But you have to learn to kill. He belongs to theirs. I don't want to kill. He makes a kill tonight. And they all belong to the night. It's three hours short. We must take it home. 
You help me out. What do you want? Believe me, I told you. Just don't think of it as killing. Amen. Amen. Don't think at all. It's just something that you do night after night. It's only ever a question of time. If you're not familiar with Near Dark, that may be because it got overshadowed by Lost Boys. Now, we have some love for Lost Boys here at Film File Studios, but there's something about Near Dark. It's everything that Lost Boys isn't. You think about the humour in Lost Boys, it's not in Near Dark. You think about the way that vampires are portrayed in Near Dark, they are ruthless. And I think because of Lost Boys, it performed poorly at the box office when it came out. But over the years, and after great critical reviews, it now has a fully formed cult following. The plot follows a young guy in a small Midwestern town who becomes involved with a family of nomadic vampires. It's part Western, part horror film. It's all gory and it's all shades of fabulous. Andy, what do you think of Near Dark? Uh, I rewatched it a few days ago because the last time that I saw this must have been back end of the 80s. I must have been like 18, 19 years old at the most. Whilst I had a a memory of it, because when I did see it back then, I rewatched it so frequently with me and my buddies because we just loved the whole style of it. This revisit, I worried, like you said, would it hold up? But man, I was just dragged, kicking and screaming into that dark world that these vampires inhabit. Uh, Like you say, the film was released around the same time that vampires were becoming popular in the movies again. But whereas films like Lost Boys played the allure and romanticism of these creatures, Near Dark plays the darker aspect a lot more. As immortal creatures, these are creatures that see humans purely as food. And so the gang that Caleb ends up riding with are not altogether pleasant company. May is the only one who seems to hold some shred of human compassion still within her, and she's the one who he connects with. Um, I'd completely forgotten that it was Adrian Pazdar who played Caleb in this. Yeah, and he's so darn young, isn't he, in it? He's so young. As as soon as it started off, I was like, where do I recognise him? It's like, oh, he's in Heroes? Oh, wow. And that's when it all fell in. Marvellous, like, he's marvellous within it, and he's our entry point into it. The film wastes no time in just putting him straight with May, she bites him, he starts to change, he gets taken by this family who initially want to shred him alive and kill him. They think that he's he shouldn't have been left alive. But May defends him, and so they give him a chance to prove that he can be as bad as them. That's what the film is. It's an exploration into if you're a mortal vom- vampire and can get away with pretty much everything, what's stopping you? They travel from town to town. They swap vehicles so that no one can keep on their scent. They sleep during the day in whatever warehouses, hangars, etc. they can side up in. And they taunt each other and they taunt humans around them and they relish the nastiness of themselves. Let's talk about the cast, shall we? Yeah, I mean, you can't talk about Near Dark. And, and I guess now it looks a little bit by stunt casting, but you can't talk about this film without talking about the casting. And, and the way that ties into to James Cameron's Aliens. So you've got Lance Henriksen as Jesse, the mysterious and rather dangerous edgy leader of the pack. Jeanette Goldstein as Diamondback. And the absolutely magnificent Bill Paxton as the twisted Severin, who can put on charms and seduce at ease. He's likeable and affable when you see him interacting with humans until he changes. And then Bill Paxton does what I like to refer to as a Christopher Reeve in the when he changes and flips personality, his whole demeanour changes at the same time. He's, he's so damn terrifying and so damn charming 
within within two different scenes. Even when he's about to annihilate a group of rednecks in a bar, he's, he's almost lovable in a way that you think <laughs> these people are going to suffer. There's so much tension in, in it. It's now a classic bar scene and there's so much tension of it. And and, and most of that is, is around Paxton's performance. Those three who, you know, were instantly familiar to me when I first watched this as the characters that they played in Aliens. I think it was possibly the fact that they were involved in it that was why we rented it out on VHS because we recognised their names. And they are marvellous, but they never take away from the rest of the cast, such as Jenny Wright as May, who is, like I say, she's she's clutching on to the last shreds of humanity that are still within her. And you can see that turmoil as she's fighting for Caleb's soul, basically. And you've also got a child actor in there, Joshua John Miller, who's not playing a child. He's playing an old vampire in a child's body. And it works. It works so well. The film takes us on a really twisted, dark journey of nomad travellers. And it's aided by Bigelow's low-key, never glamorous direction. She captures the dirty detail of the world. And sometimes the scenes are chaotic in nature, capturing Caleb's confusion as he's forced to ride with the gang. Then you get to that bar scene. The key bar scene is possibly one of the best scenes that I've seen in a vampire film ever because it goes from being jovial and flippant when they first enter and by the end of it you are terrified as to what's going on you are more terrified than the inhabitants of that bar who are getting picked off in front of each other one by one it is brutal but like you say at the same time as Bill Paxton's being brutal with he's playing with his food basically that's what he's doing he's playing with his food And in the same way that you might play with your food on your dish when you're not that fussed about eating, but you're going to eat anyway, that's what he's doing with human lives. And it's horrifying. It's a film that found a cult following. Uh, It's a film that's often overlooked because of, I think, uh, it was a female director and Catherine Bigelow, uh, who, of course, went on to to bigger and better things and at the time was, was dating and later married James Cameron, hence the Aliens connection. But I think it's when people list great horror movies, they have a tendency to to miss this off and i think it's because it was directed by a woman she just proves that she can hold her own as she has in every other film she's ever made with anyone and that's why when other films came out like lost boys and fright night this stands the test of time okay it does have that 80s aesthetic and and it was made then so why not but it's such a strong second movie this was only her second Mm -hmm. film everything that she brought to to point break everything she brought to uh the hurt locker started with this film it's it's tense it looks great it looks a billion dollars it's it's a fabulous fabulous movie absolutely still to this day i love it because it has it has a timeless quality i know they've talked about remaking it and there was even talk of a sequel at one point but it just holds a special place. I'd, I'd hate for them to remake this one. In the same way, I would love them to remake Highlander because it is just pitch perfect. Yes, you can say Tangerine's Dream does date it and some of the stylists has that sort of MTV look, but but plot-wise, casting-wise, and what it brings to, to vampire mythology and vampire movies, the fact that it's a Western, ultimately, is just a superb, uh, uh, it makes a superb classic movie. It's interesting that initially with the casting as well, 
there was going to be a fourth member of the Aliens team involved. It was initially hoped that Caleb would be played by Michael Bean, who'd worked with Cameron in not only Aliens, but also Terminator. But he, after reading through the script, he didn't get it. He couldn't follow the story. It wasn't his cup of tea. And so he just respectfully backed away from it and just said, cast someone else because I don't think I can get this role. Yeah, this was perhaps the very first film that I saw of Bigelow's. But it took until Point Break before I started to recognise her name. But I definitely became a fan of her work from this film. Just I didn't realise I was a fan of her work. I wasn't aware that it was a female director until later years when looking back through to see what Catherine Bigelow had been making through her life. And I was like, oh, I hadn't realised that was her. And I think, like you say, that it probably gets overlooked because it's a female director. I think that's why you should never really focus on who's making the film because Catherine Bigelow has never made films that seem inherently female-led. They never seem like they're made for a target audience. She makes films that she likes to make. She's a skilled director and her skill, you can see starting to be refined in this film. You can see the elements that she will bring to future films in this film. And it's well worth tracking down as possibly, one, like you say, one of the best second films of a director's career that you can get. So if you've never had a chance to see it, the film is near dark. It's weird. It's beautiful, it's gory, it's gorgeous, and it's one of the best and clever vampire movies that you will ever see. So on to the reviews. I've not had a chance to see this. It has appeared for free this week on Disney+, Plus, but Andy has because, well, I think you've, um, you've been getting home from the cinema late at night and just bonking <laughs> yourself in front of the telly. Andy, tell us about Raya and the Last Dragon. Our world is divided, and to fix it, I must find the last dragon. Note to self, don't die. From the studio that brought you Frozen. I'm back. Hold on! My girl Raya and I are gonna fix the world. I wish to join this fellowship of butt kickery. Bring on the heat! Raya and the Last Dragon. So Disney's latest tale is a beautifully animated original story, which tells of a land named Kumundra that once had dragons of all the elements, keeping peace and harmony and keeping the land fertile and the rains washing and everything was kept in perfect check. But that was shattered when an encroaching darkness destroyed all but one last dragon. And now a mystic stone is the only thing that prevents the darkness from returning. However, the humans that were once living in peace in this land fought each other in the past over the stone, and the separate tribes that have sprung up as a result have been on uneven ground ever since. When an attempt at bringing a peaceful resolve leads to the accidental fracturing of the stone, the land is once more plunged into peril, and it becomes a quest by Rhea, the daughter of the protector of the stone and the leader of her tribe, to find the pieces and restore the stone once more. Oh, and in doing so, she manages to release the last dragon, Sisu. Now, the animation in this is sumptuous. It is beautiful. It's evocative of the mythical environs that the tale inhabits. The story plays a bit too formulaic at times, and there's no real surprises to the beats. You know exactly where every element is going to be leading. You know which characters are going to have a change of heart. You know how it's going to resolve. And, you know, if you've watched Guardians of the Galaxy, you'll notice a few similarities towards the end. But there's the blessing of this film 
by Disney of it not shoehorning in a musical number. There's no song and dance numbers. There's no wittier side like dance choreographies with minor characters. Instead, we have a Disney film that just tells the story. That's not to say that music isn't great in this. The soundtrack is a really delightful score. And there is a musical element brought into it with the dragons using their powers and abilities. There's like a mystical element with like swirling music that really lifts and conveys. So music is used, but it's not the song and dance. This is not Frozen with Let It Go. This is a solid tale, a story from start to finish. The core of the story is all about human spirit, trust, strength of heart. The mythology of dragons and stones is just a way to add that mystical element and basically a MacGuffin to draw the elements along and introduce the characters. Maybe that's for the best because unfortunately one problem that I had this film and it's not I'm not saying it's a bad film I'm just saying that it's got a slight problem in that the inner logic of the mythology doesn't stay consistent throughout the film without saying any spoilers there's moments where things happen that didn't happen earlier in the similar circumstances but there was no good reason or explanation as to why it wouldn't have happened before. It just happens now just to narratively push the story along, which I think is a shame because I'm fine with opening my mind to fantasy mythology, but the fantasy mythology has to have its own inbuilt logic structure and it needs to stay consistent. Otherwise, how can I believe in it if it's not believing in itself? But leaving that small hang-up aside, this is a solid family film from Disney, as we've come to expect these days. And whilst not on par with films like Moana and Frozen, because yes, I know it's cool to hate on that film, but let's admit it, we all loved that film when it came out, and if in our hearts, we still do. This is another great tale in which the female central character isn't seeking true love's kiss, isn't after, you know, a happy ending with her Prince Charming, and this still feels quite refreshing as a move for Disney, who for decades, all their stories were about finding the person to love and marry, even if it was someone who, um, you know, thought you were dead in a coffin and so kissed you in the middle of the forest and brought you back to life because weirdos. Great Disney film. It's on Disney+. Plus. It's available at some cinemas at discount prices for the family morning specials that cinema chains are running. Treat yourself. Watch this on the big screen if you can. If not, hop on Disney+, Plus and immerse yourself in... An absolutely majestic tale. Hopefully then I'll get a chance to see that pretty soon. Uh, it has been planned as one of our uh, family family movie nights. And just for the fact that, it, as you said, it's just a beautiful looking film. The, the design work and, and the animation just look superb. So I'm looking forward to that. What else have you got? So my second film is a complete contrast to Raven and the Last Dragon. And it's called The Outpost. And it landed on Amazon Prime this past week. We're going to win by getting their hearts and minds. We want their hearts and minds, and they want our blood and guts. Sorry, pal, but that's life at Camp Keating. Every time they take a pot shot at us, they're figuring us out. When the big one comes, they'll have us dialed in. The Taliban are here! Hundreds are coming! It's the big one. Saddle up! Everybody fall back. Enemy in the wire. I'll hang back and provide cover. We need to retake this camp. We don't have any air support, the manpower. Our men are trapped up there. Our ammo depot is 40 yards away. There's everything we need to stay in this fight. Let me do this, sir. Now, The Outpost is based on the non-fiction book, The Outpost, An Untold Story of American Valor by Jake Tapper. 
And the film tells the story of PRT Kamdesh, combat outpost post Keating, as it was otherwise referred, one of several US Army outposts in northern Afghanistan, which was established in 2006. The events of the film play out in the weeks preceding the Battle of Kadesh on October the 3rd, 2009, when a force of over 300 Taliban attacked the base, which was defended by only 53 soldiers that were stationed there. This is a true story. It's worth making that very clear out the gate. This is taken from a true story, like so many war films are. And the first half of the film is that build-up. And during this section, we're introduced to the squad. And we see a unit that functions, albeit the pressure of the compound location. It was set within a valley uh, with hills all around it. So it was constantly getting spot attacks from the enemy adding tension to the atmosphere, and it leaves no room for mistakes. So some of the squad are very curt and abrupt with each other. If someone's not pulling the weight, if someone makes a mistake, they're, they're slapped down because they're putting everyone's life at risk. And this makes it feel like a genuine depiction of the wartime environments because there is no room for error in a combat situation. And so anyone who's a joker, anyone who's not stepping in line, isn't going to get on with everyone. Now, during this setup, we get to feel the oppressive presence and we get to question ourselves and we get to see the soldiers question why an outpost would be stationed in a deep valley, which makes it a prime target from attack from the surrounding hills. The last hour is a tense hour of combat when the Taliban strike. Now, praise has to be levied on the direction choices made in this film. The choice was made not to sensationalise or glamorise any of the combat, but to present a realistic representation of the events of that day. Huge respect is given to the real lives that were caught up and the handful that were lost during the battle. There is no gung-ho bravery and artificially inflated like explosions with people leaping to safety and saving like lives by jumping on top of grenades, etc. There's none of that embellishment. This is a pure depiction of the combat of that attack. The cast are strong. There's names such as Orlando Bloom, Caleb Landry-Jones, Corey Hardrick, Jack Casey. Solid, realistic depictions of soldiers in the pressure of combat. But the true standout star in this is Scott Eastwood, whose portrayal of Staff Sergeant Clint Ramesha is a compelling representation of an officer trying to keep his squad together in fraught circumstances. It's also worth noting that Eastwood looks more and more and acts more and more like his father each day. And in this, there were moments that I could quite easily believe that this was one of those early Clint Eastwood war films with him playing the role because it was exactly that kind of presentation. In addition, Milo Gibson, son of Mel Gibson, appears as Captain Robert Yaleskis and again has the exact same screen presence as his father. This could have been a Mel Gibson war movie. You can see that element in there. And both these actors who have started to grow over recent years, this is the film that has really made me sit up and pay attention to them. I want to see more of both of these actors going forwards. If they can impact on the screen in the way that their fathers did, and in this film, they clearly can. We're in for some treats in the coming decades. I expected very little going in from the outpost. I've seen so many of these adapted from real life war films that never quite get it right. They always feel embellished for entertainment factor, but this doesn't focus on the entertainment. I'm not saying it's not entertaining. 
it is it's engaging more than anything else i was engaged with the film early on we also see over the closing credits the usual photos of the soldiers and the actors who depicted them and the resemblances are uncanny there's really good casting throughout this this is a great film if you like your war films well worth checking out if you're a historical buff well worth checking out if you just want to see some fantastic actors delivering a solid true life story the outpost on amazon prime get on it there's been a couple of films out recently called uh, outpost or the outpost and one of them a friend of mine worked on which i think is the one that's just dropped on netflix which is a which is a horror movie so i don't think it's the same one you've been talking about uh, and maybe I ought to watch that so I can review it. I have seen, and I know you've seen a few more episodes than I have. I've seen the first episode of Sweet Tooth, which I absolutely loved. Based, as uh, you'll heard from my neat thing last week, on Jeff Lemire's comic for Vertigo. It captures the essence of the book and then brings so much more to it. Expands what was done in the book in, in two or three pages, but gives you such a, an element of backstory. The casting was superb. The look of the movie is amazing it's it's just that proves again that netflix has all the money uh you're a couple of episodes ahead of me but i am so loving this i thought it was beautifully made beautifully shot uh well acted uh, an intriguing storyline yeah i followed the book so i'm interested to see where it goes i know some of the elements where it crosses over in advance but i just thought it thought it was stunningly beautiful absolutely loving it we're sitting around as a family to watch it it's just i i'd never read the comic book and so we set, went in blind with it and just love, I love the world mythology that it's building. I love, like you say, the acting. I think that the, the kid playing Sweet Tooth himself is absolutely charmingly magnificent. He's so well placed. You can't help but feel for his plight, basically. Marvellous. And I just have uh, time to mention something else I've just dived into. And I'm still not 100% sold on it. With names like J.J. Uh, Abrahams, Julianne Moore, uh, Pablo Lorraine and Stephen King connected to it, you think it would be an instant winner. I'm not saying that it's bad, but that's the adaptation of uh, Lisa's story that landed on Apple TV. So all the episodes have landed. Now, I'm only one episode in. I'm intrigued and confused. It's based on the book by Stephen King. He adapted it himself. So it has a, a less of a cinematic quality and more of a literary quality to it, as one would expect. It's his favourite novel. I will stick with it because I'm intrigued, but I'm also confused. Uh, as I said, great cast. Julianne Moore, Clive Owen, Jennifer uh, Jason Lee, Dane DeHaan. Am I going to go the full length of it? I don't know. But for now, I'm intrigued enough to stick around. Coming up this next week, in cinemas this week, currently on previews and going to full release this weekend, is Nobody. Bob Odenkirk of Better Call Soul fame is an unassuming man with a mysterious past who is pushed to the edge in this very fun, John Wick-esque action comedy. The full review will be coming next week, once we've both had a chance to see it. I can't wait to talk about this film. Another film coming to cinemas this week is The Father. Now, I spoke about this film a few episodes ago. The film scored Anthony Hopkins and Oscar. And as I said back then, it's a powerful and honest presentation of dementia through the eyes of the ageing Hopkins, a once proud man who's losing his grip on reality. This is an absolute must-see film. And whilst I probably won't be watching it again, it's a five out of five. I just can't find myself watching it because of how much it hit me on a deeply personal level. 
I was in tears by the end of it. So if you go to see this at the cinemas, take some tissues with you because there's not going to be a dry eye in the house. Over on streaming, on Now TV and Sky, Kajillion Airlands this week. Two con artists spent 26 years training their daughter in the art of the swindle, but a hastily conceived heist risks turning their entire world upside down. Uh, the film stars Evan Rachel Wood, Deborah Winger, Richard Jenkins and Gina Rodriguez. And this had a very limited release at the cinemas last year, just before lockdown, either one or two. I can't remember which. It all blows into one now. And it was on my radar then. Thankfully, I get a chance to watch it now that it's dropping on Now TV. Over on Netflix, there's a film called Awake. Gina Rodriguez, again, and Ariana Greenblatt are in a film that sees a global event wipe out humanity's ability to sleep. And a troubled ex-soldier fights to save her family as the world around them descends into a spiral of chaos. On Disney+, Plus, come on, Loki. There's nothing else to talk about. There might be other things landing. I don't know. I got as far as Loki and got excited. Yes, the new Marvel TV series. By the time this episode goes out, there'll always be an episode on Disney+. Plus. Oh, yeah, we should be talking about that, shouldn't we, um, uh, next week's show? Yeah, we'll we'll cover the first episode, and as we do with any Marvel show, as each week unfolds, we'll discuss our theories and probably get them all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. But before we go, and we do this every week, Andy and I will tell you about the stuff that we've liked. No, not just liked, we've found to be neat, whether that's a book, uh, a movie, TV series, a game, you name it, as long as it is our neat thing. Andy? What is your neat thing for this week? So my neat thing for this week is over on Humble Bundle, which is a very common place for me to go for for my neat things because they do so many great deals. Each month, there's a subscription-based package which has a varied selection of games, some known titles and a selection of great indie choices. Whilst the games might not always be 100% to everyone's taste, for under £10 per month, getting over £100 or more of games is nothing to be sniffed at. Well, this month's deal, which will be valid for the whole of June and well worth signing up for, even if you just sign up for the one month, offers you Civilization VI plus the first two expansions, the Platinum Edition, as it's called. That's £102 worth of game right there based on the current price on Steam, which is an absolute bargain of a deal for fans of any strategy game or who, who've loved the Civilization series. Throw in a bunch of other games for like, alongside, like Worms Rumble, and you've got a piece. If you've got a PC and you like a game, if you're not picking this up, you're doing something wrong. Civilization VI is a cracking game. I have lost hours of my life to this game, and now that I've finally got the other expansions, because I bought this humble bundle just to pad out the expansions that I didn't have, I'm going to be losing some hours. It, it's a game that you you jump on at eleven o'clock at night, thinking I'll just do a couple of rounds before I go to bed, and then you look look out the window and go, "Oh, it's seven a.m. Where did that go? This is what what I'm going to be. So I'm going to be half asleep for the rest of the month, but." I'll be happy because I'll be conquering the planet in Civilization VI. Humblebundle.com, humble choice. It's less than £10 to get that whole package. Wow. Even I'm interested and I'm not a huge gamer. Okay, my neat thing is a little bit different. Mine is The Dirt, the confessions of the world's most notorious rock band. Yes, it's the autobiography of Motley Crue by the band themselves and New York Times writer Neil Strauss. I saw the not too good Netflix movie and I've never been a fan of Motley Crue. What I am a fan of though is um, is the behind the scenes and the ruminations of, of what it takes to be either a successful movie star, a successful band 
and and I like I like those behind the scenes stories. So the grimier and the more sordid, the better. And you can't get any more sordid and grimier than this book. Some of the things that shocked me absolutely left me aghast by some of the exploits of this band. As I say, not a huge fan of Motley Crue, but uh, uh, the book is an interesting look, not only to a, a time and a place which has now gone, maybe not even sadly, but has now definitely been left behind. Their treatment of women, for instance, is absolutely appalling. But it, it's a time capsule of a, of a period of music and a, and a period where rock music ruled the world. Uh, and if you like to be shocked and stunned uh, and sometimes find it outrageously funny in the same chapter, then I highly recommend The Dirt. And that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. I couldn't do this show alone because it would just be me talking to myself. <laughs> so, Andy, as ever, it's been a gas. It's been absolutely fantastic. And don't forget uh, to tune into Loki. Uh, but before we go, I'm going to separate your head from your shoulders. Hope you don't mind, none. <laughs>